Welcome, everybody, to episode four of the Big Ben and Friends podcast. I am your host, Big Ben Ortmans, and this week, I'm going to be getting to know one of my friends from the pro wrestling business a little bit better. This man is a former Impact Wrestling referee and a current Game Changer Wrestling, MLW, Chikara ref, amongst a plethora of other independents that he wrestles. Uh, he is a jack-of-all-trades in the wrestling business, as far as I'm concerned. He is a co-creator and a star of independentwrestling.tv show, the locker room detectives, which is one, it's, it's awesome. You guys got to go and check it out. Um, he's one of the legit nicest and most giving individuals I've had the pleasure of meeting in the business. And honestly, if it wasn't for him and uh, probably a handful of others, very, very small handful of others, uh, I, I wouldn't have been able to uh, springboard it into the opportunities that I'm into right now. So uh, I want to welcome my friend, everybody, Kid Ref, Chris Levin. How are you doing today, sir? Ben, I'm doing wonderful. Thank you for all the kind words. I hope I can live up to them. <laughs> you know what's funny is everybody has told me that I'm giving them their best intros, and uh, all <laughs> I'm doing is just like spouting off what I know and uh, just being honest, I guess. So uh, be proud of all the things that you've done because that is uh, y you're doing awesome things, buddy. You know, if you're ever looking for any other work aside from doing podcasting and all the other. Uh pots that you have your fingers in uh, i think a hype man would uh would suit you just fine <laughs> i could be someone's flavor flav and that would be the greatest day of my life um so first things first i what i think i did forget to give you the memo but i did see that you are drinking something there i always like to make sure that we've got a drink in hand just to kind of make sure that everybody's yeah. comfortable so what are you smashing on today right now i'm drinking a uh, watermelon flavored red bull uh, i love anything uh watermelon flavored like that's my thing Dude, I don't think we have watermelon-flavored Red Bull down here. You guys just get everything cooler in the States than we do here it, in Canada. It's the uh, the summer edition ones. They only just came out in the last few weeks. Okay, right, summer edition? Uh, they did a fall edition that I saw down here, and I didn't try it, but I believe it was supposed to be a pumpkin spice flavor. Did you ever try that one? <laughs> no, that sounds so weird. I want to try it just because I'm curious, but no, I haven't. <laughs> yeah, because, see, here's the thing. I can't drink Red Bulls because they legit hurt my eyeballs. Like, I, I don't know if that makes any sense, but, like, I sweat, and it's, like, it's not, like, a normal sweat. I, like, sweat gasoline tears, it feels like, out of my eyeballs when I drink that stuff. I it's it's horrible my uh my buddy matt grant who funny enough is was uh was also a referee and has transitioned into uh, to wrestling in the last uh year and a half two years or so he is fueled off of red bull so perhaps this could be a a referee thing for all i know <laughs> you know i never drank energy drinks until i started doing more television production stuff like with impact and places like that and you I, as you know you can't get through one of those days especially if it's a few days in a row without something fueling you like when, in the early days when we were doing like five, six days in a row, like there's, there's no chance you had to start drinking energy drinks and I've become accustomed to them for sure. I've done, I think the most I ever did was a three day like pay-per-view and then, uh, and then two days worth of tapings afterwards. And by the end of that third day, that is a feeling that I wouldn't bestow upon my worst enemies as far as like exhaustion goes. Like I couldn't imagine what a five or a six day stretch would be like, especially uh, at that time, but holy, because those days are one very, time, very long. One time when we were in Florida, there was a point where I was on the road 10, 10 or 11 days in a row, I forget which, and it was like six or seven for impact, plus a travel day, plus I had indie dates, uh, like two on the end of each one. So it came out to 10 or 11 days. And in the midst of it, I got a cold. When I, was, I got a cold one day, 
it went like by the next day it was gone then the day after it came back so like Ooh. it was just so brutal too cold to the span of a week and you still have to do tv tapings i remember i was so just wiped from everything you know that yeah. i um I, I always set my alarm super always always have a bunch of alarms always super paranoid about that because I want to get there on time and it was the last day of tapings I, I had two colds so I was just drained and I woke up and if call time was like noon or something like it was like 2 30 like I was like oh my god and I was, I was <laughs> terrified like like oh my god like this is probably my second or third time at impact so I wasn't you know like one of the guys yet I was still trying to earn my place there right and Thankfully, it was the last day of taping, so everyone was real chill, real burnout, just trying to take an easy day. So I was able to sneak in, act like I was there the whole time, and no one noticed. <laughs> yeah, those those urns of coffee are sought after. <laughs> <laughs> those are sought after items uh, yes. <laughs> in, in production meetings, for sure. So uh, one thing I always like to start these uh, these podcasts out with is just because the point of me wanting to do this whole thing in the, in the first place was to, to not only catch up with my friends, but to get to know them a little bit better. And one of the things that I personally enjoy is asking everybody if you remember how we met and why we became friends in the first place. But I mean, obviously it's a, it's a pretty easy story to remember. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't remember specifically which taping it was, but I know that it was, uh, in doing uh, the loops in Canada with Impact, and you were assigned to run the time cues, which yeah. I don't know if people outside of wrestling or even people who are in wrestling outside of uh, television production know how important it is, but like it's integral to just like being the glue that keeps everything together, keeps everyone on point. And you know, like it's not just happenstance that if a wrestling show goes on till 11.05, then it ends at 11.05. It's because of the, you know, the time, the person giving the time cues, delivering to the referee, delivering to production, delivering them to the wrestlers, you know, and that's what you were doing. And I, I don't want to say it was your, it was your first time doing it for television. I don't know if you had done it before with your own promotion or not. So I had never timed out stuff before. I had always, uh, I, I had always thought that I knew what running a show was all about until, that first day and that first day happened to be the slammiversary pay-per-view that was like you, you know which one i'm talking about yeah uh, oh that one jeez <laughs> so, yeah that one so i found out that i was doing that job 45 minutes before we hit the air uh i was assigned the job and was told hey you're gonna be uh timing at the shows is that cool and i'm like yeah sure no problem i can't you know, say no i if, if we're if we're able to talk a bit about that Slamversary show, uh, there's a few things. I, first, I want to point out, you know, everything in pro wrestling, it's very last minute and like a little fly by the sea of your pants, a little like that. But it, it always frustrated me to see like in a lot of places, but especially when, when you were running time cues, how all, not on the ball the other people in the office were when it came to assigning that because it's like people like you were there and ready like, hey, okay, tell me what I need to do. Tell me what I, where I need to be. And instead of, you know, figuring out all these things early, anyone you talk to would get mad at you and there'd be heat on you because you're just trying to figure out your place. And it's like, guys, I'm, I'm an integral part of a live pay-per-view and like, like, I need to know what's going on. I need to know what's expected of me. And they just want to wait till last minute and not for any reason. They just, it's, it's just unprofessionalism and it sucked. And it felt like, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it felt like every time you and a lot of other production people were brought in to handle stuff like that, that 
they, that's what they did. And I don't know if it was a power play or just being inconsiderate or what. It, it, it sucks, and it's unfortunate. And I'll be honest with you. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. I'll, I'll just say that we, we can get into it after your take if you want, but that pay-per-view turned out to be a disaster on a time point. I don't, I don't think that story's ever really gotten out publicly. But I don't think it has either. And that wasn't your fault. It, wasn't, it, was, it was the office's fault for letting that happen, you know? We got through it. Like, that was uh, – yes, it was a 100% a disaster. It stresses me out thinking about it. Uh, <laughs> and especially because it was my first my, – my first night on the job was, was that night. Um, so just to kind of give you a little bit of a preference or a preface to this, uh, like I said, I was given the job 45 minutes before we hit the air. Uh, I was asking anybody in like everybody, I was just like, Hey, uh, what am I doing? Like, what, what's, what's the game? Mm -hmm. Um, I remember nobody was like, had time for me because again, we're 45 minutes before the fucking pay-per-view starts. So everybody's got stuff to do. So I'm like asking just anybody. And next thing I know, I'm just, somebody guides me to the seat and they kind of sit me down and they're just like, okay, this is your spot. And I'm like, all right. And then Josh Matthews walked past me. And then I was like, Hey, Josh, I'm like, any, any advice? Like this is my first night doing this. And like, this is kind of a big deal. I feel like, do you have any advice for me? He's like, my advice for you is no advice. I was like, all right. Uh, People then, do things like that just to try to mess with you all the time. It's yeah, so counterintuitive. It was very strange, but in a weird way, I kind of understood where he's just like, I'm not going to try to teach you how to do this. Like, just figure it out. And, and in a weird yeah. way, I kind of understood that. But then all of a sudden, Keith Mitchell, uh, the, sorry, I, want, I hate to, I already kind of broke the, the, the story, but this older man walks up to me and he just starts talking down to me like I'm a, like a father does to a son. And I don't mean disrespectfully. I mean, like, he just like, all right, young man, like, this is what we're going to do. And, and, uh, I, I got you if, if, where I'm in your ears. So if you have any problems, you just talk to me, this is the little button that you push and this is the button you're going to talk to the refs and blah, 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 blah. And he's just like, and this is kind of the gist of it. And he's just like, and you're going to be just fine. Cause I'm going to be in your ear and, and we're going to get through this together. Okay. And I'm like, who are you? <laughs> and he's just like, I'm Keith Mitchell. And I just, then as soon as he said that it like, it took me a second to register, but then I was just like, Keith Mitchell, wait a sec. The Keith Mitchell, that Tony Schiavone would always throw to in the truck when they're just like, ah, blah, 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 blah. Let's throw to Keith Mitchell and in the truck. And then that Keith Mitchell. And then he just laughs. He's like, it's all bullshit. Young man, you're going to be just fine. And I'm just like, I'm going to be just fine. I'm going to be just fine. And you and know then, what? At a place where not everyone was the nicest or the most professional or the most respectful, Keith was always incredible to work with. I believe he's had a production at AEW now, which I'm, I'm so happy for him. He, he deserves it. Um, definitely a good catch for impact to have him for those few years that I was there. He was, yeah. he was a joy to work under. As far as I understand, he was the only – he was the last day one employee that they had until uh, AEW scooped him up. Again, from what I understand, I could be wrong mm -hmm. about that um, because I believe the only other guy was Abyss before he went to the WWE. But, and maybe Bob Ryder. Ah, uh, yes. Bob is still – yes, Bob is there, I believe. Yes. Okay, so you are right. He's still there. But um, Shout out to Bob. I love him. I've, I've never actually got the chance to, to deal with Bob, but that's only just because I've only ever worked for impact, like in Toronto and, and maybe mm -hmm. in Windsor stuff. But, um, that night, as soon as Keith calmed me down, like, uh, it, there was, uh, yourself, Harry D, uh, and Brandon toll. And, mm -hmm. uh, the three of you guys, along with Jeff Cavanaugh, we, I, I felt like the five of us just kind of 
got through that night together and we were just kind of all like, all right, well, whatever else is going on, like we have to rely on one another. So like whatever's going on, like we better get along, like we better figure this out and like we better get on the same page. And I just remember you, uh, and, and it's no disrespect to Brandon, but like Brandon just had zero time for me. Uh, cause he didn't know me and he's a high strung uh, individual. <laughs> yes. So the only one that was like, that I knew was Harry, but the, and then, but he's not really there all the time. So you, I remember took it upon yourself to like really help me figure it out. Like you were just like, if you even saw me take a deep breath, I just remember like you were behind me and like you were there and you were just like, yo, yo, don't worry. Like this, 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 and this. And, uh, I feel like you, me and Keith, like between the, the, the two of you. And again, it's no disrespect to the other guys cause I love them. But, uh, I felt like it was kind of like you and Keith where I was like, okay, these are my, this is my, my little web. And this is my, my circle of trust that I, I need to, to get through this night. And then, uh, there was one match that went if i if I knew we were going to talk about this it's i I'm pointing at it. I got a little drawer right there where I've got all my timesheets with all of my notes that I've kept to this day. Uh, mm-hmm. I could tell you which match went over time. I could tell you uh how much time it went over the whole shebang, but I just remember uh having to deal with a very very angry austin Aries uh and he was not thrilled with the other match that maybe went over their time by like, I think 11 minutes or something. I, I <laughs> well, well, when it comes to just me offering help, that's something I always try to do because I, I know what it's like to be the new person there, um, whether it's impact or anywhere else. And, you know, throughout my career, I always felt um, a lot of people before they knew, knew me or before I proved myself were very quick to dismiss me, whether it was because I was a referee, because I'm a smaller guy, because I have such a baby face and I look so young, I think people were very ready to think, oh, it's just some kid who doesn't know what he's doing. And I felt that I've really had to fight to prove myself. And as a referee, there's a lot of unsung heroes who, when you're working with a television production that you're working with directly, that you may never see their name on TV or, or hear about them that much, but without them, you wouldn't be able to do their job because you know Keith and the guys like that in the production truck they're in your ear, but they, they, have, they have other priorities that they're dealing with when it comes to switching cameras and just the live production of the show that they don't always have time for the referee. Whereas people like uh, you, the people who are running the time, or uh, Ingrid, who's the floor director, who's ringside, those are the two people who are your right-hand people. And they're, if, if they're, they're your safety net. If something goes wrong, they're the ones who are there for you. And vice versa you need to be there for them it's a very not only is it just being a good person kind of thing of helping each other out but it's like that's how you get through the show i watch out for people who are going to watch out for me you know and and of course ideally everyone watches out for one another Mm -hmm. but um there are some people who are more closely working together like for example not many people are thinking about the timekeeper and what i don't mean uh, your position. I mean, the person ringing the bell, but me as the referee, I interact with them directly. So yeah, a quality timekeeper makes a difference. And um, I don't want to tattle on what match it was per se, but I do know that there was a certain match on that pay-per-view that wasn't long before the main event that had a uh, pull apart uh, security angle afterward. <laughs> and they, uh, <laughs> and that went just, just the Shakespeare of it all, you know, 
Um, yeah. It was a, it was an awesome moment, but that went several minutes over. I don't know if that was the only match. It probably wasn't, but I know that was the one that everyone actually, was talking about. It actually was. Uh, okay. We, we were, if, if I remember correctly, again, I could go through my notes. Like it's funny. Cause I've watched that whole wage that, Twitter beef go back and forth a, a while ago. And I actually went and looked at my notes while this was all going on. And I was, it was funny to kind of see like who was actually right and who was like kind of wrong on that whole thing. Uh, again, that's for everybody else to judge and decide that's, that's not for uh, this podcast, at least anyway. But the, and- the biggest thing that I kind of remember, and I think that this, this uh, was maybe a benefit as to why I ended up getting good at the job so quickly. And I hate, even hate saying that because I hate putting myself over, but because there was such a, a short amount of time to learn the job, mm-hmm. I almost feel like you, you and Harry basically taught me that you're, you're like, yo, this is how I like to be worked with. So please work with me like this. And I'm like, okay. Cause you're the only person yeah. that's telling me what to do and giving me advice. So I basically mm-hmm. was like, okay, well I'm going to do whatever Chris says because Chris doesn't want to fail and he needs me yeah. to make him not fail. So he's not going to give mm-hmm. me bunk advice. So whatever you, t- you were just like, I, I, I need to know where I'm at every minute, every minute. And then I'm just like, okay, cool. Yeah. And as funny as it yeah. sounds, I was just like, I never even thought twice about it. And uh, all of a sudden everybody's coming up to me and they're just like, I need to know where I'm at at this time. And I'm like, who the fuck else does this job? I thought it's like every minute. Like, I don't even, I don't know. I have nothing else to compare it to. I just do what I'm, I'm told. And then it dawned out, it took, it took me a while to look back at the retrospect, but it, it was funny because I wasn't like, as far as the timing goes, it was you who basically do this tell me this, tell me at this time. And then I just never wanted to get out of it because it worked. And Keith loved it because Keith was just like, Oh yo, this kid's telling me where I'm at every fucking minute. Oh, this is great. And I was just like, thanks for the awesome starting advice. (laughs) And you know, um, you and I both had monumental nights because it was your first time running, you know, running a show. And for me, it was my first time refereeing the main event of a live pay-per-view, which, you know, I had done online stuff before, but that was my first like pay-per-view pay-per-view, you know? I wanted to ask if that was you that did that, because I do want to talk about that main event, but sorry, continue. Absolutely. Um, And, uh, you know, I'm not going to get into names or anything, but there was a segment earlier in the night where uh, there's a referee bump and someone, some of them were uncomfortable about who would do it and what it would mean. And, um, was it safe? And there's just all that stuff. And the guy who was involved with bumping the referee just kind of walked up and grabbed my wrist, pulled me. He's like, he's like, this is Chris. He's my dude. He'll, he's fine. He can do it. And I was like, yeah, sure. And it ended up getting switched again and again. And ultimately it panned out to me refereeing the main event, which wasn't necessarily even scheduled to happen. It just had to like last minute, you know, there was such a change of things that it's just like, okay, just do it. You know? Yeah. And um it was, it was a really special thing because it was Abyss who assigned me the match. And Abyss, well, I, I told Abyss, he's like my Dusty. He calls me son. I call him dad. He, the way that people talk about Dusty Rhodes, teaching them wrestling and the, the drama, the, the narratives, the story arcs and all of that, I always felt that way about Abyss. He was another guy who, from my very first week at Impact, took me right under his wing and always treated me well, always looked out for me, always 
if I, if I was frustrated, if I needed advice, he was someone in the office that I could go to, but not as someone in the office, as, as like, like a big brother to talk to him and Sanjay both. Yeah. And so, you know, I was getting this incredible, you know, main event at Slammiversary. Abyss was the one who signed it to me. Um, it was Moose versus Austin Aries. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of talk about Austin Aries, how he is to deal with and stuff. But I can personally say that I've never had a single bad experience with Austin Aries. He, he, and you know what? I think a lot of people are going to look at this as a uh, negative thing. But the, the one person I could compare him to was Loki. Because working with low-key is also very uh, similar. They're very intense. They have a very set mind for what they want to happen and how they want to be portrayed and how they want the, the show to go. And, you know, I think it could be very easy to misinterpret that. I always say misinterpret, I guess, uh, because it's open to interpretation. So I guess it's very easy to interpret that as being overbearing or or them maybe talking to you, down to you or something like that. But the way I saw it was they, they just had a lot of pride in their work. They wanted to be the best performers and put on the best performance possible. Mm-hmm. And on the indie scene, as you know, there's a lot of times when you're going to deal with people who just don't know what they're doing at all. And I found that when they were talk, working with you for the first time, they would literally idiot proof it so that anyone could, they, like they walk it through, step by step and even you know someone like i don't mean to be arrogant but just to say someone like me who knows what they're doing if they're idiot proofing it to me maybe i don't need that but at the same time i appreciate that they care because they don't know me yet and sure. then you know after working with me a couple of times they realize and it got to the point that all scenarios was requesting to work with me and it's like oh cool it's like wow i i grew up watching ring of honor dvds generation next and all scenarios is it, it, it's it's a mark out moment it really is yeah and I, I'm someone with a really big creative drive. I'm very big into story. Storytelling is my passion in life, writing, filmmaking, refereeing, anything, producing events, things like that. And being able to collaborate with someone with that same drive, because not everyone has it. There's plenty of people who are just there to collect payday or just, yeah, let's just get through it and, you know, get to the next show. Yeah. And Austin Aries is not one of those people. Um, I believe, you know, I don't have the sheet in front of me like you. I also keep them all. Uh, he, I think like, uh, curtain to curtain, which means for anyone listening, it means from the very start of entrances to the, to the outro of it, that segment had somewhere like 21 or 24 minutes, something like that. And that's for entrances. That's for the match. That's for everything. And bell to bell, that probably would have been like a, it was probably like an 18 to 20 minute match they had called. Mm-hmm. During the in-ring introductions, which were long and drawn out to give it that big fight main event feel, you buzzed in my ear and you were like, uh, "We got 14 minutes." Okay, we got 13 minutes. You know, and and I remember telling Austin Aries that, and Austin Aries just he just smirked like, "Of course, of course we do." You know, like why wouldn't we? And see, I thought he do. knew going out there because that's why I, I thought that's why he was so angry was because he was like. I need this chunk of time to, to, to do my art and mm-hmm. you're trying to take a piece of my art away from me. And I, that's how I interpreted it. Like I, that's why yeah. he was so angry and I understand that. Um, but yeah, when he went out there, like he kind of was giving me the, like, a, he, he, he led me to believe that uh, he was getting his fucking art done regardless. And mm. uh, I was told, that uh, we've got 
we've got this time. And that's like the first finish line. And then there's like this like weird two minute gap where there's like, yo, that's the real finish line or else we're getting fined. And like, there's going to be trouble with the, the pay-per-view provider. So I was like, okay. And just to clarify that for anyone who hears that and doesn't know necessarily what you mean. Um, I think it was like uh, the pay-per-view has a hard 11 PM curfew that once that time hits, they need to go on to the, whatever the next show is mm-hmm. and that the pay-per-view uh, channel is airing. And if they don't, if it bites into that time, rather the a, the pay-per-view goes off the air or B they'll continue airing it at a price of fine. Like you said. And I didn't know this at the time during the match, but when you were counting me down, three minutes left. Okay, we got two minutes left. That did not include the two-minute buffer that of did time, not. which yes. I, I assumed that there was a buffer just, just, by, you know, just by being around the business and knowing it, but I didn't know for certain, and I didn't know how long it was. Mm-hmm. So I can't even begin to tell you how stressful it is when we're in a, we're in a spot where uh, Aries and Moose are on the ramp and there's a bump off of the ramp and they take out a group of uh, people who planted there to catch the dive and like it was probably some of your students who were catching them <laughs> and uh, and they, they then you come in my ear we're going off the air in 45 seconds and it's like and I'm like doing a count like two <laughs> yeah and you gotta... <laughs> and it, it's such a hopeless uh feel helpless and hopeless feeling and uh i'm not sure if anyone i'm sure a lot of people know uh amasas from chikara deshaun pratt he had taken the ride up with me and he was one of the people who caught that and helped catch that dive into the crowd and i remember i i don't know if it's on camera or not but i he was like on the ground and i'm just like uh isn't it real name's Darrell? So Darrell, Darrell, and like he's like selling but like he sees him calling him so he just so i'm like Tell them they have to get in the ring in 30 seconds or the pay-per-view is going off air. And, you know, he crawls and he's like, has to tell Austin Aries, the champion, like, get your ass in the ring. And it's like, not something he wants to do, but it's like, you know, laps. Yeah. And I, I remember um, they get back in the ring and I'm sure Aries was maybe more well-versed into the, what the cushion of time was than I was because, you know, he's the champion's main event. He has to know that. Mm-hmm. And you know, I probably should have known too, but whatever. <laughs> I, so here's not the thing. on you. That's not on you. No, it wasn't on me. But like, I I just remember being told by the person above me who was mm-hmm. behind me and breathing down my fucking neck. Uh, As he does. <laughs> yes. Uh, we need to get off air this time. And then I'm like, okay. And then he just. That's like, a great you- impersonation of him, by the way. Wow. Sorry. <laughs> if I hope I didn't give that away. Um, but then all of a sudden it was just like, okay, okay. And he's just like, you've got, and then as it's not happening, I'm kind of like looking back and he's just like, you've got a two minute buffer. You need to get them the fuck out of there now, now. And then I think I was just like, Chris, we got two minutes or we're fucked. <laughs> we are fucked. And, and then, sorry, go ahead. No, it's just, yeah, it's just, you, you know, kind of like, there's all this pressure on us to do something, but it's like, we, we can't really do – we can only inform these people. We ultimately have no say in whether it happens or not. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I, I, don't, I don't know the exact second. I feel like it ultimately – they hit the three count, raised the hand, and it was over, like right on the dot. 
it reminded me of the ECW pay-per-view, the legend of that first one where like they went mm -hmm. off the air, three, two, one generator blew up. That the, <laughs> the generator might have fucking might as well have blown up. Because I just remember like as soon as we that I heard Keith go like we're off the air, like I'm looking at the the countdown numbers and it was yeah. It had to have been 15 seconds or less. Like and that's, it, it was a moment where I remember genuinely standing up and I had to stop myself from flipping that entire fucking table and just shouting, Oh my fucking God, we did it. Cause I remember uh, when Austin and you came back, it was the first and only time I ever had like a, a real moment with Aries where he just, where I just looked at him like, holy shit, dude. And he's just like, we fucking did it. And I fucking told you I would. And then I'm just like, Hey, we did it. You told me you would. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> and if, you the, if you look at the runtime for the match, I think the Aries match maybe went like 11 minutes or something. And they originally planned for double that. And yeah. And you know, that, that's why probably the most important aspect, a the most important personality trait that someone in the wrestling business, especially an auxiliary role, such as you or I, uh, should have is an ability to stay cool under pressure and i don't want to discourage anyone because that's like all traits that's something you can work on and improve mm -hmm. at any skill yeah and like it's like when you think about it anyone could freak out and just not get the job done but the reality of the situation is people are counting on you and you have the rest of your life to freak out there have been yeah. so many times where things have happened at a show in the ring that i wanted to lose my goddamn mind at and it's like, you know what, I can, I can spend the rest of the night losing my goddamn mind. I can, but yeah. I got to be a professional and just get through it now. You know what I mean? And 100%. that was one of those nights for sure. <laughs> well, I will certainly say that, I guess, looking back at it with the perspective, it's probably mm -hmm. the best that nobody did give me any advice or I didn't have like a set idea of how to try to go about that. Because uh, I, I, I think now looking back at it, learning on the fly, Maybe not the safest and smartest idea from a business perspective, but for me, that became my that became my like standard. Okay, this is how it's done, right? And I don't, and I literally don't know any other way. So and you know what? Yeah, there's no way that any responsible company would wait till the day of the 45 minutes before pay per view to have someone doing it their first time be placed in that position. Let alone having someone their first day doing it at all. Like they should be, you know, brought up on house shows on then on TV. You know, like brought in and taught how to do it because there's so much that could go wrong not because it's you but just because anyone who's in that there shouldn't be a first day referee going up over you you know what i mean like right. it's just it's just wildly irresponsible in this weird way though like i kind of felt like i formed this really cool bond with the crew that night though uh just because again like it shouldn't have been there shouldn't have done it but everybody just seemed to uh to really enjoy the direction that was happening i suppose and uh i had people coming back to me like sammy for example like he was just like came back to me and he's just like you i, I like you I, I i i like to know where i'm at and i always fucking knew where i was at like i didn't have to ask i didn't have to it was just like it was just there and i was just yeah sweet i'm like this is good because like the again first night in having to learn this way and if this is the only way i know and everybody digs it then yeah. perfect it's it's hard to have bad habits at that point right yeah and regardless of whether it's right or wrong being put in that position to begin with that is like you said the it's the best one of the best ways to learn i know that when i, I started refereeing when i was 15 and mm -hmm. 
the the first match I refereed was with two students who started at the same time as me. But then after that, the second match, I was just at a show and someone discreetly walked past me. Hey, go change in your ref shirt. You're ref in the next match. And it's like, you know, to us now, it's not a big deal. But when you're 15 years old and you've only done one match, it's like, wait, what? So and I, I, I started yeah. to, to cut you off there. But that, that was actually going to be one of my, my next questions was, um, like what got you into becoming a referee? Like, what, did you start trying to, like, did you start as a, as a wrestler or was this something that you always wanted to do? Like, was that the, was that the initial goal? Well, well, you know, the, there's an old saying in the business that you get into it because you have to, you just love it so much. You just feel compelled to, mm-hmm. and that would very much be the case for me. I was, um, a shy kid, uh, didn't have a ton of friends and I was just one of those people who defined their identity by their fandom and for me I was the pro wrestling guy I loved professional wrestling and I was 15 and I found out that there was a wrestling company running 20 minutes from me and I was at that point in my life where it's like anything independent feels more authentic and feels better than the mainstream Mm -hmm. so I was obsessed with the indies and to know that there was I had my own local indie company and you know I, I I'm a reader. I watch a lot of documentaries, a lot of shoot interviews. I knew everyone has their, um, this just, just this random circumstance that allows them to, it's serendipity that they can get into the business. And for me, it's like, Oh, this is it. And I, I went there and I, I'm not a big guy now. I'm five foot eight, 140 pounds, but I was even smaller then. (laughs) And, um, being 15, I couldn't train without my mom signing permission. And my parents were, were, too scared that I would get hurt, which is a very reasonable thing to think that a 15 year old 120 pounder could happen to. Especially so, like, how long ago was that? Sorry. This was, uh, so this was in 2007 when I was 15. Okay. Cause I was going to say like, so y- you're, especially when you're that young, you're getting in there with some bigger guys and like what, yeah. what, what school was that? That was, that was the force one pro wrestling uh, training school. And that was in egg Harbor, uh, New Jersey in South Jersey, my neck of the woods. It was okay. run by Tommy Cairo, who uh, he was in ECW around 92, 93, 94. Mm-hmm. He was the first guy to have a Singapore's cane, uh, Singapore cane match with, with Sandman, I believe it was. And like, it was, it was that program that led to dreamer being involved and helped yeah. make Tommy dreamer. He got caned and all of that. Um, and, and a few local guys like uh, Tommy force, uh, Diego DeMarco, uh, you know, old, uh, Tommy Force was trained by Iron Mike Sharp. Diego DeMarco was trained by, I believe, Heidi Lee Morgan. Uh, maybe I'm wrong. Someone like that around Jersey. Just like people, Iron, you know. Iron Mike Sharp is actually from uh, Hamilton, Ontario, which is like yeah. 30 minutes away from where I'm at. Unfortunately, I never met him. He, he, pa- he had uh, long since moved and, you know, passed away a few years ago. Uh, yeah. By the time I got involved in the scene, I've heard nothing but great things, but but yeah, um, I, so my, my parents wouldn't sign the form, but I was the kid who hung out at the training center. And, you know, not every training center has that, but a lot of them do. Mm-hmm. Um, and whether it was sweeping up when everyone was done or they had a TV that was always running, I'd, you know, I'd switch out the VHS that was in it. Uh, when there were shows, I'd, I'd put out chairs or put out flyers in between. And, you know, of course, I, I'd be the guy. I, was, I showed up early, left late. So if it was no one else there, they would pull me in and like, Hey, I want to roll around. And I would, I would learn some chain or I would learn how to bump or learn to run the ropes. So it was very, um, like the gym mascot pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. I could could definitely go with that. And, uh, eventually it kind of just naturally turned into this, 
um, there was a there was a group of uh, there was a class of students who started at the same time as I did. Yeah. So they start when it gets to the point they start needing practice matches. They need a practice referee, and I started doing that. And you know, like when I got into the business, like well before I got to the business, I had this dream that I would be a wrestler. And then when I started going through the bumps of it all, and you know, by the time all was said and done of my training, I did all of the training that requires to be a pro wrestler. That's required to be a pro wrestler. Yep. And since then, I've, I've had a few matches just here and there, whether it's goofy ha-ha things or under a hood or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just not for me. I, I, I'm built like a baby bird. I just can't handle all the bumps and bruises that frequently, that regularly. <laughs> um, no, that's fair. And so it's, you know. Out of curiosity then, like when you first, when you first started uh, like with, with refing and whatnot, um, you, you probably ran into a lot of the same situations that anybody else would starting, I guess, really any position that you realize that it's going to be a lot harder than you originally thought. And that it's also nothing like what you actually thought it was going to be, especially as a pro wrestling referee. Like there is yeah. nothing that is, that could be more further than the job that you think that you're going to get yourself into. You're like, Oh, I'm going to go and count three and make sure that fucking homeboy doesn't tap out or whatever. And I'm yeah. gonna, I'll be extra dramatic while I'm at it too. Has no fucking clue what actually goes into becoming not just a referee, but a very good referee uh, that is able to do stuff like on your level, you know? Um, you. So yeah. what was the, what was like your first, like what was the biggest obstacle that you ran into like when you first started this and like, how did you overcome that? I mean, so early on, like I was just refereeing very small shows just around New Jersey and like, I'd be the only referee, which, which is like you were saying before, that's a great way to gain experience when you just have to brute force, get through it all. You know what I mean? Uh, and you don't have a choice in the matter. Yeah. Um, so a lot of, a lot of, pro- so one, one big problem over the years that kind of, turned out to be my biggest saving grace is the fact that I am babyface. I just, I just look young. That's just, mm-hmm. that's just Gen X. My mom looks very young too. Um, I'm, I'm a small guy. I look young. People think I'm younger than I am. Um, I'm 27. People think I'm a lot younger than that. And it's, it's funny. I swear all of like my, my like buddies are, are built like you. Uh, I swear like my, the guy who just did episode three before you, Chris Ordecki, he has had an entire MMA career and is a Canadian pioneer in, in mixed martial arts. He's a legend. And I think he's like, and keep in mind, he's already had his career and is working mm-hmm. for the government doing this really great job right now. And I think he's like 28. Like, and he still to this day looks like he's 14. It's the <laughs> craziest thing. My buddy Brady uh, that I brought up before, uh, same thing as you. He's the same age as me. He's 36 years old could still probably have to get ID'd if he goes to the beer store. (laughs) And that's something that, um, that's something that I was always very deeply concerned about because as a referee, you need to have this authority and be someone that people listen to. And I didn't have that because of how I looked and it's like, no one's going to listen to you. No one's going to buy you as a figure of authority. And, and years later it would come to work out because, you know, fans would start calling me kid ref and baby ref and it would endear me to them. And that, that helped me out a lot with getting bookings. But um, at the time when I was younger, I, instead of leaning into that authoritative role, I think I leaned more the opposite to play to the fact that I didn't look authoritative and I refereed in a much more timid way the first uh, probably three or four years, which a lot of people were fine with locally, like, oh, yeah, oh they, we love it that you make us look big and you're scared of us. 
But when I started to branch out, I started to work with more people who knew what they were doing, you know, and had done it longer, uh, you know, I had more experience. And they're like, no, you need to be authoritative. You need to be in charge. And that took a few years to get out of me. It's like, you know how you could be told something so many times and it's not because you're, you're obstinate. It's not because you don't want to listen. It's just because it's just something just doesn't click until you hear it a certain way. Yep. And um, I was on a show with uh, Simon Dean Nova and he was giving me advice and he pretty much said, you have to be 10, his exact words were, you need to be 10 feet tall and bulletproof. And he explained how I wasn't, I was the boss in there that the wrestlers had to listen to me and like, they can't win unless you allow them to, you know? Mm-hmm. And I, I, after that, I started thinking about uh, people in positions of authority that I had to deal with, whether it was that dickhead boss at work or the, the hard ass teacher in school. And I started basing a lot of my mannerisms and stuff like that. So I, I started being overly aggressive with how I referee to, to, to cover the fact that I am a small person, that I do look young. Uh, so, you know, I will, a lot of people when they hear my ref voice versus my normal voice are surprised because I, I, I really speak from the bottom of my throat and mm-hmm. make it deeper. I'm, Whereas I'm the most relaxed, uh, calm person <laughs> in real world. In, in the ring, I'm very quick if someone gets my face to light, just two hands shove them as hard as I can because not only is it about maintaining my authority, but it's like, who's going to complain about a 140-pound guy shoving you? Then you look like, you know, like a wimp for it. So, um, 100%. So, that, so I started being more aggressive. So that was a, a big learning curve for me. <clears throat> and – if they're smart, they know don't touch you. They can't do anything back or else they're going to cost themselves a match and just screw that whole thing up. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> and which is difficult because when you're, when you're younger and on the Indies and you know, like in, when the smallest guy in the class, a lot of people are going to look at him like he's the tackling dummy. Yeah. And on the Indies, when you're on the smaller levels and with people who don't know any better or who are bullies or whatever, they're going to look at you and it's like, Oh, I can just treat him however I want. I yeah. maybe even put them in dangerous situations just to get myself over. And that, that's something I encountered a lot at CCW because that was like the first big indie that I worked at. I worked there from 2011 to 2013. And there was just so many dangerous business practices and unsafe performers, unsafe people in management who were totally fine with you getting hurt because, oh, this is CCW. You got you know, you to be that way. You got to handle it. Or if you, don't, if you don't, can't handle it, you don't belong here. Um, had that attitude. And I got a lot of injuries during that time. And it's, it gets to the point where it's like, you don't even, you dread that second Saturday of the month when you know the show is coming. Yeah. And I mean, thankfully the business is trying to turn a different way. We saw that all these people come out against CZW and their business practices um, a few weeks ago, which is, yeah. which is nice to see. Yeah. That seed actually planted uh, or that, that seed was started here in Ontario uh Lou Fisto just went to uh town on that and, uh, oh I love her yeah 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 I, yeah I you know uh Lou Fisto and I I'm not sure we might have been at WSU when CZW and WSU ran together at the same time I'm not sure but just uh working with her on the indies I, I did a tour with her in Mexico she mm-hmm. is such a wonderful person such a wonderful performer uh she really didn't get her fair shot in the business in terms of her attitude and her abilities she's uh, solid gold person and performer so far as I'm concerned. I haven't had many dealings with her. Uh, <clears throat> so I, I don't really have enough to form a, a good enough opinion. Um, mm-hmm. Just because mm-hmm. I, I don't want to be that guy that's going to come across as like angry or bitter just because, uh, 
you know, I, I only met her a few times and it wasn't what you, you thought or hoped that it was. Uh, mm -hmm. All I know is that I, I've met her, I've only dealt with her a few times and it wasn't really enough to, to form an opinion, but obviously yeah. she's, uh, she's done some really great things. And um, yeah, she, she, she definitely is one of those girls who probably, you know, maybe should have had a shot, but at the same time too, uh, you never know. Like we're life's got a really strange way of, uh, of kind of working itself out in a weird way. And I don't know if that makes any sense, but like, to, who knows, maybe the big stage wasn't for her, you know, like maybe her, her path in life was to be this like indie darling, uh, because she's created and opened a lot of doors for a lot of people, you know, mm -hmm. and like, we all have these weird roles in, in wrestling. Like I, I, I realized mine, like, probably around that time when, uh, when I started doing stuff with impact was, okay, so my role isn't going to be in the ring moving forward. Like, it's just, that's not how I'm viewed from like this company mm -hmm. and this company yeah. is a big deal. So if, if that's not going to be how I'm viewed, I got to think to myself, maybe that's just not my place. Maybe I'm more valuable in the business that I love so much in this area rather than here. And maybe I want this to be up here, but if it's not, that's not my reality. My reality is that I'm actually, mm -hmm. this is my, this is my path now. So, you know, maybe that's the same thing with her. Like maybe that was her, her path and was to, was to be not just an indie savior and open up these doors and, and all these good things, but, you know, bring attention to this CZW uh, stuff that's going on, which is really unfortunate and like just and really gross. Yeah, and you know, I really like the way that you framed all that because it's a very Taoist um, path of least resistance kind of way to view it. And, uh, you know, I think one of the biggest things going against uh, Lufisto was I think a lot of people from her generation of wrestling, and by that I mean people who were performers who were prominent in the late 90s, early to mid aughts, they're kind of like this lost generation because it was it was a time before, it was the time after WCW and ECW closed down, so there were less opportunities for workers. It wasn't a workers' market anymore. There was only one big person, you know, one big company in town, and without and that company at the time was not looking at the indies as much. Back in you know from early two thousands, mid two thousands, they were interested in people who were bigger, and it wasn't about wrestling finesse. It wasn't about background. And yeah. then by time. Uh, they get out of that mindset. Unfortunately, there's still a prevalent mindset where women are seen as having a shorter shelf life than men. Mm -hmm. That you can age out of age out of the business much sooner than you would a man, and which I think is completely unfair and and baseless. But I, I think that would be a very big part of it. Yeah, because you have to remember at the time when she was at her peak. Um, women's wrestling was not women's wrestling. So if you would have put her there, that would have stopped so many different opportunities for uh, creating the legend that she's kind of created for herself. Like, I think maybe the perspective that I have on this is that, um, you know, guys like me, when I first started, I wanted to, to be like the, the Guerreros and the Benoit's and the Jericho's. Like I wanted to be that, like that grinder mm -hmm. that, that wanted, that, that was like known for just outworking everybody and just fucking being yeah. like the absolute best at what you do. Uh, because that's a, that's a yards, like, uh, that's a, it's, it's something to attain, you know, that's, mm -hmm. that's, that's the goal is to become that. 
you know, with somebody like Lufisto, I'm sure that she had the exact same goal in mind. Now, here we are in 2020, where there's this new crop of girls coming up. And who do you look at as a somebody to, as an inspiration? Well, girls are going to look to other girls. And they're going to mm-hmm. look to girls that have been influential. As far as North America goes, she has certainly been one of the more influential girls, especially in a time frame. Uh, like her, her whole story is unique because again, like she was talented in the wrong time. You know what I mean? Like everything was just so out of whack for her that in this weird way, it's kind of built this legend of what she is and what she could have possibly become. Now she's this thing that everybody can look up to and who's to say that would have happened if she would have went and, and attained those, uh, you know, attained that job at a larger company where she could have just sat on the shelf and just been a, you know, tits and ass show and made an, a complete embarrassment of, and she would have none of the merits to go off of that she has at the moment. Yeah. She, she broke barriers because by, by time when she was, she was one of the first women to actively be having intergender matches, which, now it's a very commonplace thing, but back then she literally had to go to court over it to, to make she, it legal. <laughs> so here's the funny, I can tell you a funny story about that. So uh, she in Ontario uh, was, the, was the reason why uh, intergender wrestling became a thing. Like, because we had oh, yeah. uh, the Ontario Athletic Commission would, would not allow it. And uh, mm-hmm. so Lufisto knocked down that door for intergender wrestling to happen. And then I can't exactly remember how long it was afterwards, but then... Uh, my my business partner and best buddy, uh, the notorious TID, Chris Tidwell, he decided that he didn't even want to deal with the the commission anymore, and he came in and just knocked the shit out of it. Him and his buddy, uh, I, I won't say his name because I don't know if, what I'm supposed to say. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> okay. But they, they single-handedly, between the two of these guys, took down the Ontario Athletics Commission. They got at a, at a, a government-approved like study that they did, and I'm going to get Chris on the podcast uh, – eventually to tell the story because it's something that the world genuinely needs to know how fascinating this is. But, uh, he, you, it's amazing how somebody like Lufisto was able to even open that door for Chris to go in and just completely burn the house down. If that makes any and sense. I think that's, I think that's, that's wonderful because I've never had a positive experience with an athletic commission. Did you, were you familiar with my uh, run in with the state athletic commission in New York? I was not, I don't believe, no. Okay, so um, my, my, uh, one of my best friends, Bonesaw Jesse Brooks, uh, she used mm-hmm. to work in Women of Honor. Uh, her and I ran women's wrestling uh, events in New York and New Jersey uh, around 2013 through 2015. Okay. Uh, Valkyrie Women's Wrestling, we only ran about six shows. Um, at the time, I think it was, it was right before the women's wrestling revolution kind of started, and I don't think the business was exactly ready for it yet. You know what I mean? Because yeah. we, we ran shows that legitimately just, we would not use bad talent. And even some of the more premier women's wrestling companies back then in the States uh, that ran, they still, there was still subpar talent on mm-hmm. shows because, I, because just the standard wasn't held as high. Like, like even, even in a ring of honor, if, the standard for a woman's wrestler was not as high as for men's wrestling. And we thought that was bullshit that we wanted to run shows that, that just bucked that. And so we, we ran, so women's wrestling used to be banned in New York city. It was banned up until the seventies. 
And our show, uh, our first event in 2013, it was the first ever all women's wrestling event in New York City. Like it, it hadn't been done before, wow. which we didn't realize it at the time. Like we were just running a show. <laughs> then we, well, we get that's off. That's huge. Then, Congrats, by the way. Yeah. Thank you. And I, it's a civil rights milestone that can never be taken away, which I, I love and I'm happy about. But, Hell yeah. Um, a few years later, it was 2016, and Bonesaw Jesse Brooks versus Mark House on an indie show. And the New York State Athletic Commission had been become increasingly bold with how they were enforcing uh, professional wrestling events because they're notorious for – they're not wrestling people. They, they're boxing people. They have to deal with wrestling. There's no reason they should be involved with it. They don't know anything about wrestling, but here they are. And it was a political thing that they would overly enforce rules on wrestling, even non-existent ones, just to get brownie points from the commissioner and, you know, just to climb the ladder politically. And before the show, I was the one tasked with walking the state athletic commission representatives through the entire event, what was to be expected and all that stuff. So just to make sure there were no issues because I, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I can be a details person when it comes to stuff like that to make sure everything's going to fly well 100%. and went through everything. There was no issues. Then uh, later in the night, the show's happening and Bonesaw Jesse Brooks versus Mark House, they you know, do their entrances, ring the bell. They're in the first minute of chain, and all of a sudden, the bell rings. And I stopped, and I'm really confused. Everyone's confused in the match. If you watch footage of it, which it's on YouTube, Jess is still, like, chaining. Like, she didn't even realize. Right. <laughs> and um, <clears throat> the dude from the State Athletic Commission had the, bow- had the match stopped, and he said, uh, intergender wrestling is not allowed here. This match can't go on. And I was floored because, you know, I had promoted shows in New York, so I knew that was bullshit. Yeah. And I knew Jess was not a, not someone who liked public speaking or anything like that. She kind of was someone who let her intensity do the talking. And I looked at Mark and I said, do you want to do this or do you want me to? Because I had picked up a microphone and he goes, go ahead. And I just immediately, I called him out on being sexist, how they weren't even, they didn't even know their own rules. I was like, I was like, what about women's suffrage? Like... I go, wait, didn't women uh, get the right to vote like 100 years ago? And, and the match goes, oh, yeah, women's suffrage. I go, yeah, like, you can't be doing this. And the guy screaming at ringside, he's like, you're going to be suspended from New York. Like, this isn't allowed. And because I, you know, I, I was talking shit on him. Well, yeah, started, yeah. The crowd started chanting bullshit. And we, we had to go to the back. And, like, while the show was running, we had to, like, argue this out to let this happen because – he was he was just not going to allow it to occur and i was like show me in the book in the books right now where it says that and he's thumbing through the books for 20 minutes and eventually he finds it and it says a uh, a male boxer cannot go against a female boxer and i go well dude that's clearly not the same thing yeah and uh, and i like i was like we were just it just kept asking like he threatens to suspend me which you, you can't suspend someone in new york like you don't need a license to referee in new york like there's nothing to suspend me from you know yeah and like he was just making all of these threats just to shut me up and i go you know one of my friends is a lawyer and she's in the audience how about we bring her back and he goes oh she's not allowed back here and i go <laughs> you're i go you're you're not this isn't your show you have no all you know you have no authority to sit to do that and he goes yeah watch me i go I'm bringing her back here. If you have an issue, call the cops. So I brought her back. And of course he just storms out because he's a little coward. And it got to the point where they had to call their bosses, which, you know, that's the last thing his boss wants to be called at like 11 o'clock on a Saturday night. (laughs) Yeah. Especially for this. 
Yeah, and Holy. they and and like they were like, yeah, you have you have no basis to enforce this. Just let them have the match. And it went on to be the main event of that night. And it was like such a genuinely emotionally charged match because the whole crowd was invested. This played out in front of the whole crowd. The, the, you know, at least the beginning of the story, and they what wanted a, to see the match go on. What and an it was, authentic way to build heat for a main event, though, huh? Right. It was, it was, <laughs> such, it was such a great feel good moment. I, I loved it. It was really special to be part of that's and, a great story yeah it, it's and you know what unfortunately the new york state athletic commission eventually they apologized they they sent um like enough newspapers contacted them about the story that they apologized and said that their people had to be trained better but those same people are still at shows still poorly enforcing things still yeah. causing trouble for no reason and it's like you know like they tried to enforce a non-existent rule and there shouldn't be there shouldn't be that in pro wrestling there shouldn't be people from outside the wrestling business trying to overrule it like in you know in maryland you can have intergender wrestling only if you contact the state athletic commission ahead of time and get permission because they need to come and evaluate the woman and say, and make sure that she knows what she's doing that she can hold up you know against her own and it's it's such patriarchal bullshit because it's like the person doing this inspection isn't a pro wrestler they've had no wrestling experience so it's like it's like let me ask this fan to you know for all intents and purposes and when i say fan i mean someone who's just isn't formally trained in how we do things yeah to make a judgment call that's based in the mechanics of it it's uh, it's absurd mm-hmm. that is that's and that's I ridiculous. Could, I could go on. Yeah. We, I could we, go off on this topic. Yeah. Well, the MMA community runs into that a lot too, where like there's literally just like just a, a dude or a lady in a suit. And all of a sudden you get to throw your weight around because you got that little badge on your. Yeah. Whatever. And, and you it's, know, I don't, it's just I don't disgusting. Think the, the idea of someone of some type of oversight, I don't think is the worst thing in the world because I'm sure a lot of things. A lot of negative things could be prevented if there was a some type of oversight commission, but it it needs to be people who know what they're talking about and know what they're doing. Because almost, as it stands right now, it's no benefit to anyone. No, it needs to be self-governed because you can't put somebody in charge of this who doesn't understand this. Just because this business is so unique unto itself, and mm-hmm. having to deal with the individuals involved is an entirely different skill set than what you would need as far as like dealing with a regular athlete. You know what I mean? Because it's mm-hmm. not it's oh, yeah. not the same thing. Um, so one thing I want to do here, Chris, is like I'm going to. Uh, we're going to have to do a part two on this just because there's a lot of questions that I, I want to get to. Uh, but in all fairness, I promised you that I was going to try to wrap this up by a certain time. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go into some rapid fire questions here. So what I want okay. you to do is I want you just to get your quick thinking hat on. Uh, okay. There's no right or wrong answer to these. It's just, you, you know how it is. I'm going to ask you a okay. question. Just give me the first thing that pops into your head. Okay. Absolutely. So what's your favorite match you've ever been a part of? Um, I'm going to give you a couple. Austin Aries versus Moose from that slam anniversary that we talked about because that's my first pay-per-view main event. Um, a little prior to that, I had refereed Loki versus Rey Mysterio, which was a cool. super special first time. Yeah. First time match. You know, I, you know, my fandom was probably at its highest in the early 2000s. So, you know, of course, Rey Mysterio, he's one of my guys. Yeah. And growing up in the Northeast, uh, idolizing the Indies, low key, of course, he's a big deal to me. So their first time match at Jersey All Pro, a company I grew up watching. Um, and the third match would be Tessa Blanchard versus Sammy Callahan from Slammiversary, the following one, a yes. uh, year after the one that I did with you. Yeah. Uh, to be a part of the first ever intergender wrestling match 
to main event a pay-per-view was so incredibly special, especially with Sammy, because Sammy Callahan, I'm not sure how many people know this, he's one of my mentors. He's one of the people who got me out of New Jersey and working in other states. Like, I don't know if I'd be in the wrestling business if it wasn't for Sammy, his, his guidance. Me and Madman Fulton, uh, you should check that episode out. It was a lot of fun. Me and him actually were talking about Sammy and just how he's that kind of guy that he'll do things for you. And if you try to say thank you, he'll literally tell you to go fuck yourself if he even tells you anything whatsoever. Yep. So, yep. I love him, uh, by the way. He's, great. he's a good dude. One of my favorite human beings and probably one of my better friends at the moment. Like him and I talk on a very, very regular basis. Uh, he's me and him ended up being on the road with, yeah. I, I can imagine. I, I miss that guy a lot just because of the, the border issue right now. But yeah, mm-hmm. he's one of those guys that like, as soon as the borders open, I will happily drive down to Ohio just to hang out with him and his lady for a weekend. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, who's your favorite? Oh, sorry. Uh, who is on TV right or who is not on TV right now? Who should be on TV right now? Dasher Hatfield. He is the Chikara grand champion. Mm-hmm. And if anyone here has IWTV, which is kind of like the WWE network for the indies. Um, my show Locker Room Detectives is on it, uh, which is like a sketch variety show of just wrestlers having fun. So it's cross uh, pro wrestling. There we go. Um, <laughs> anyone, I would, I would recommend to anyone, they check out his last few matches uh, at defending the Chikara Grand Championship. Um, they're so incredible. The emotion he brings to it, the storytelling, the pace of the match. I, I can honestly say I've never been in the ring with a better wrestler than Dash Ratfield. I've been in rings with people who are as you know are at that level, but no one better. He's I incredible. To, I got to do a match with him once. It was like an eight-man tag, and him and I were on the same team. It was for Alpha One, and uh, it was a, just a hilarious shit show. And what we ended up doing, how we started the match, was uh, he was my center, and I was the quarterback. We played a game of football in the ring. It was a lot <laughs> of fun. Uh, who's your favorite band? Uh, Pink Floyd. Ooh, who's your favorite sports team? I'm not a sports guy, but I, I do smile a bit more when I hear the Eagles are doing well since, you know, South Jersey, Philly. <laughs> Ugh, gross. Uh, who's uh, – I was about to say who's your favorite opponent thus far. I didn't consider that one for the referee, but um, we'll just skip that one. What's the biggest goal that you've set for yourself that you've accomplished? You know, this might sound like a uh, – easy out but I don't really set goals it's like there are things in my career that I know that I'm going I want to do mm-hmm. and I kind of just trust the process and know that if it's meant to be I'll get there and that's the same in and out of wrestling like to use a non-wrestling example I grew up idolizing Ripley's believe it or not I love the weird I love that anthro historical you know exploration of other cultures and of our own past and Growing up outside, right outside of Atlantic City, that we have an auditorium that I would visit all the time, and I was mm. just obsessed with it. And I always knew I would love, I would do anything to work with Ripley's to be involved there. And, and now I work as a contributor that I, you know, I get to write articles for them all the time. Um, and it gets me into some of the most fun and weird things that, you know, that Ripley's press badge. I got to <laughs> do a haunted house uh, overnight with uh, Penhurst Asylum, which I'm not sure if you've seen American Horror Story, but the second season of Asylum is based on that. Oh, cool. Um, it just all kinds of incredible things. And it's not like I set out, I'm going to work for Ripley's. I just, it's just like, you just, I keep doing what I'm doing and I just, it gets aligned. It's something it's weird. It's, I, I, I'm on the same wavelength. Yeah. Uh, now, with that being said, do you have anything that you want to accomplish next? 
Yeah, absolutely. Right now I'm producing my first ever audio docudrama, which I'm going to release as a podcast. And, you know, a lot of people are just like you are doing, they're doing awesome podcasts. And one thing that I'm not seeing a lot of are uh, like hard journalism, like not just people talking, which is fine to do. I, you know, I I listen to plenty of people like that, whether it's your podcast or Bill Maher or, or, you know, uh, whoever, but I, I wanted to put together a scripted format thing that looks into that same kind of Ripley's Believe It or Not style, anthro-historical side of wrestling, look at the weird and the odd, and uncover uh, our shared heritage of the pro wrestling business. And I'm producing that right now. Um, the first episode, it's uh, – I'm not sure if you ever read Luthez's book. Uh, I haven't, but- no. It's 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 available on Amazon right now as an ebook, but uh, it's called Hooker, which with someone with your background knows that a hooker in the wrestling term isn't what we think of now. It's like uh, someone who can put their hooks into you and really hurt you, like an old time shooter. Mm-hmm. And it's it's called Hooker, and there's this incredible story in there about his mentor George Tragos in the 30s, and he was asked to take a fall to a guy who Tragos felt that he didn't deserve to get a win over him, and the promoter was like, okay, if you guys don't want to, you know, if you don't want a job to him, then you guys, my guys, he's a real shooter. You guys go figure it out in the ring. And he didn't realize who Tragos was, according to Fez. And they go out there and Tragos put him in a double wrist lock, according to Fez, and tore his shoulder out. And in the, in the book, the story goes that he got a blood infection and it spread and he needed to get his entire arm amputated, the guy. Whoa. And yeah, and it's it's such this terrifying, wild look at it's it's so exemplary of what we think of when we think of the old school horror stories of pro wrestling. When we think of the Andersons beating someone up and breaking legs and things like that, and I the story had never really been authenticated. We never really identified had before this had ID'd who it was and what actually happened. And I just was looking at it one day. I was like, you know what? This is a really interesting thing. I wonder where the truth is, where the work is. And I set out to determine that, and I have. And I'm producing. Really? The, yes. I, Amazing. I've been able to ID everyone involved. I've been able to figure out what's true, what's not. And I don't want to give it away, but. No, no, please I'm, don't. I'm, produce, I'm producing the first episode right now. Uh, I'm working on the script. I was able to get interviews with Gerald Briscoe, uh, Dr. Tom Pritchard, and Mike Wackenbush, who are three of the best talent scouts, wrestlers, trainers that you could ever imagine from three unique eras to get their take on what ties the whole episode together, which is the idea of gatekeeping of, of, you know, where the line is, because, you know, I think you're going to get a very wide range of answers when you ask is gatekeeping acceptable in wrestling. Is it okay to rough someone up? Is it okay to make them do blow up drills? Is it okay to try to make them quit? And uh, I think, you know, I think everyone, most people today could agree that there is a line that's too far, but Other than that, I think you're going to get a very wide spectrum of what's okay and what's not. And, you know, some of the answers surprised me. Like, uh, Gerald Briscoe, inter- talking with him, the, I was shocked. Now, first of all, he's, a, he's such an agreeable, lovely person who just loves talking about pro wrestling and his time. You know, like, uh, he acknowledged that he was involved with stretching guys out because, of course, he was. He started in the 60s. Hell but yeah. the thing that shocked me the most was that he said he regretted doing it, that pro wrestling doesn't need that anymore that we have gone so far into the entertainment path that you don't need that you don't need to be able to really fight or to really master a blow up drill or anything it's about entertainment and mm-hmm. that, and not only was that surprising to me i thought that was 
so cool that someone who had done so much could be big enough to say, I made a mistake and things have changed now. It's a different industry. Because you don't get that a lot. Not you get a lot often. of people resistant to change. Um, yeah. Especially and, from that era. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it shocked me. And in a good way. I was really happy to hear that he was had grown as a person. And you know what? Me personally, I think, I think some gatekeeping is good. I can't even tell you how many times I got my ass beat by Sammy. And it, it helped me grow as a person. It yes. helped me. It humbled me. It made me learn about respect and about it, it teaches you how to sell better because you know what these things feel like. Um, I think there's a very fine line between getting roughed up a bit and getting your femur snapped. You know what I mean? A hundred percent. A hundred percent. I think some of it's okay personally, but if I do someone too. thinks it's not, that's okay too. Yeah, yeah. I, think, I think that there's a very fine line with it. Um, but at the same time too, uh, as you're mentioning, you're just like where he said that, you know, you, you don't have to, to know how to fight per se. But it doesn't hurt because yeah, that is that absolutely. is that's what we're selling. So if you understand it better than uh, than than not understand it, it certainly becomes a lot easier for you to be able to portray the story it is that you would like to tell. Because therefore, you can relate to uh, all of the fine tuned details, which are the most important things, in my opinion. Um, yeah. And other than that, the two other big things I'm really excited about are. Once I get past this docudrama, I want to try to put together a book. Um, I, you know, I've written a lot of articles over the years about wrestling, and I, I want to put together a book that, like an encyclopedia of every uh, wrestling movie that ever existed. Not just That's wrestlers it. in movies, but like movies that actually have wrestling in it from, you know, the 30s and 40s on to the present day. Uh, That's a cool little project. And um, that in the end, uh, I'll stop talking to you off with, with the things I want to do with this last one, which... Um, we haven't publicly announced it yet. We're, we're getting ready to. But on the 4th of July, uh, Mark and I are putting together a show for IWTV. It's, it's going to be aired live, and it's going to be Camp Leapfrog. And it's our summer camp special of wrestling, wrestlers at summer camp, and having matches in a backyard. And there's going to be a barbecue, and there's going to be a pool, and there's going to be a lot of wackiness. And Wow, that sounds amazing. Yeah, I'm really excited about that. There's that a lot sounds of, a lot. Yeah, that there's a lot, like of, a lot of fun. Involved. Yeah, that, that's my goal is to do fun things like that that people can enjoy. 100%. And you know what? I just want to throw this out there. Uh, check out, I don't know if you've heard of this. It's a project that's actually going on here in Ontario that uh, a mm -hmm. couple of uh, close friends of mine are, are very involved with. And uh, it, they're doing this thing. That they're, they're calling it Backyard Pro. It's very similar to, to this idea. What they're doing is like they're, they're almost making like a small movie documentary kind of thing about – I don't want, I don't want to completely give it away, but like I, I will have to send you the link to go and check out this backyard pro stuff. Please do. What they're doing is so incredible. Like the vignettes that they've just put out alone for these things, especially if you know the guys involved and like the them as what their wrestlers are and them as people and then seeing what they're doing and just how they're going mm -hmm. about producing it. It is some really good stuff that uh I'm watching a lot of uh, older people get upset by it because they're like, oh, why are you doing backyard wrestling? And it's like, I, I understand that perspective because I was kind of brought up in that old school mentality, but like, it's not that, you know, yeah. like, give it a chance. So that's kind of my, my thing with, with yeah. stuff like that, especially with projects like that. Cause you'll end up finding that you like it a lot more than you would, yeah. would think that you want to um now the last part of this rapid fire question that i'll ask you is what's the best piece of advice that you can give to somebody who wants to do what you do um 
so one, uh, there's a few. One of them would be, uh, it's never a bad time to shut up. <laughs> Starting out as a teenager, I, you know, you just, you run your mouth a mile a minute. By the way, I'm, I apologize for how dark it's gotten. I, uh, it's I'm, all good. I did this, I'm not sure if we uh, covered this earlier, but I'm, I'm outside in a car because I've got the nieces and nephews over. And I know if I was inside, they'd all be banging on the door trying to get in. So um, I came out here to escape that madness. But um, Mother Nature took her lighting. Yep. <laughs> um, and no, but uh, it's never a bad time to shut up because, you know, starting out as a uh, loquacious child in the industry who never knows when to shut up, when to kayfabe something, when just to listen. Um, it, it's, it's good because you learn humility. You learn it's better to listen than to, than to speak sometimes. Um, it was just good advice to, to hear as a kid. And I've tried to take that. Uh, I know uh, I've heard that a few ways. Uh, Jason Ayers told me that verbatim. I was just about to tell uh, you, yeah. this is how I know you're a Jason Ayers guy, because uh, <laughs> that's a, that's something that I, that's a quote that I've heard a lot of times, but it's something that I associate with him because I, yeah. I see and hear him say it often. Uh, Sammy's way of telling me that once was, I remember he told me something once when we met up for a road trip is he and I used to go on road trips all the time yeah. and he told me something. And when we picked up the next guy, I related what Sammy told me. And I, I knew Sammy would be fine with him hearing it because it was one of his close friends. And Sammy explained to me, like, it wasn't my place to tell this person that, you know, I, I was like 18 years old. I didn't know any better. And he's mm-hmm. like that. And he, and the way he told me was he grabbed my arm with two hands. And he goes, Chris, if you ever tell anyone anything that I tell you, like in confidence, I'm going to break your arm in half. <laughs> in no other way, that's Sammy Callahan can. And like, and it, it, that's, and you know, Sammy's rough, he's wild, but that's his way of teaching because he didn't have to do that. He could have just been like, okay, and write me off and never trust me again. Instead, yeah. he, he made it a teachable moment. Sammy was the guy who taught me how to, how to uh, pump gas in my car because I'm from Jersey and it's not legal to do here. <laughs> Like, really? have, like it's gas. Sta- yeah. We have gas station attendants. So like I never traveled outside of the state on my own. So like he taught me how to do that on road trips. Like, yeah. Wow. I didn't even know that. Time. Yeah. That's um, crazy. And that, and find a reputable place to go. Don't go to something that's maybe the closest or maybe the easiest or the cheapest. Make sure, because if you, if it's not that expensive and it's not that far, it's still a waste of time and money if you're not being tr- uh, trained by credible people. And that doesn't necessarily mean they have to be famous or on TV, but just make sure you do your research, talk to people, find out who you can trust in the business and make sure um, there's a lot of great schools out there, but there's also a lot of fly by night places that don't know what they're doing that aren't safe. Um, so I would just say, do your homework and make sure this is what you want to do. It's not an easy thing. No. It, pro wrestling is one of the unique, uh, things that it doesn't you can look at it as a career you can look at it as a hobby either way is fine but regardless of of which one you look at it as you need to treat it with the seriousness of a career because other people's safety and financial security is on the line when you step in there whether it's safety of your opponent or the financial security of the promoter so it doesn't matter how far you personally want to go like i hated hearing all the time like oh this needs to be your life it doesn't need to be your life but when you step into the ring it it does need to be treated with that same sense of seriousness. Like even if it's something you only want to do one weekend a month, that's fine, but it needs to be treated with that same, that same seriousness that as if this is what you want to do for the rest of your life, because if not, it could seriously affect someone's well-being or financial security. I agree with that hundred percent. Now uh, to finish off the show here, Chris, uh, I always like to ask my guests here. Uh, I say always, and I'm in episode fucking four. Uh, <laughs> Since 
you know, you've been a, a great guest. And the funny thing is I've actually cut out a lot of questions because uh, I was trying to get you out of here on time and we're still, uh, we went over, but uh, hopefully you're not too upset. But I do want to uh, ask you if there's anything that you have, uh, any questions that you have for me or if there's anything uh, about me that you would like to know. There's, you know, there's so much because every time we've ever spoken, a lot of it was just industry talk about what we were doing that night or how we were going to get through it. Um, you know, like, I, how long have you been working? Because I, I don't know that. I know you've been doing it a while. Yeah. So I, so it's weird. My first day of training. Uh, so it, it's weird. I, I actually started training when I was 12 years old. Uh, oh, I, wow. I went, I went for like two weeks to this uh, group called the Hart Brothers School of Wrestling. And uh, then all of a sudden, like to kind of long story short, it I had to go and hang out with my dad for two weeks because my parents were divorced. And, uh, that was my time with my dad for the summer. So I went and hung out with my dad. I got back. Uh, my mom had tried to discuss business with the, uh, the guy and, uh, she saw the, she, she saw the work, I guess you could say. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. um, fast forward to us 16 and then be, in my mind, I was just like, Oh God, everybody's trying to like work me. So I'm trying to, I, I was that kid who, who looked for a good deal. You know, mm -hmm. so I, uh, I found a gym. Uh, it was about an hour away from me that I had to like, uh, like tr getting a train back and forth. And then once I got to the train, one of the coaches picked me up and then would drive me another 20 minutes to the gym. And then I'd have to do that drive 20 minutes, hour train, and then like a 30 minute walk back from the train station. Home. It was like, it was, it was a big, long process, but, uh, but I, I wanted to do it because to me it was just, it was pro wrestling. Mm -hmm. Uh, I did that for a while. I had my first, uh, my first day of training was September 11th, 2001. Uh, Oof. reason why I remember that is because obviously of what happened, but the guy yeah. who, who the coach was, was also working, uh, in the media at the time. And when he picked me up, he's like, ah, and I'm just like, I don't know if we're going to be alive tomorrow, but if we're not, yeah. I'm going to have the most fun I've ever had in my fucking life because I'm in a wrestling ring tonight. Um, yeah. So fast forward, I ended up running into guys like Eric Young uh, on the Indies down the road uh, and a few other people who were just kind of nice enough to pull me aside and say, hey, like um, every time that we see you, you're in the ring. We see the effort. We see that you want to do this. We see the potential, but you're, you need to get retrained and you need to go and, and relearn how to do this and do this correctly. So uh, I felt I kind of did get retrained because I ended up getting a chance to go to, uh, to do the Northern hell tour with Tony Candelo, which, uh, I've heard about those. <laughs> yeah. And the reason why I got sold, cause it was literal last minute. I got a call from this guy who his name is Vance Nevada and he messaged or he called me up and he's just like, Hey, can you get to Winnipeg? And I'm like, when he's like immediately tells me why <laughs> I look up a, a plane ticket and I'm like, uh, I can get there by the morning. And he calls me back. He's like, Hey, they'll wait for you. Get that fucking ticket and go. And I'm like, okay and i didn't have any money like i had to think i had to get my friend to like buy the ticket for me um but i got my ass on a plane and i, and I went and then uh i found out that this guy named chichi cruz was on the tour and he was like the guy in canadian mm -hmm. wrestling for me and like the just the opportunity to know that it was i could potentially wrestle him one time is what got me on that airplane to go so i got down there um i, I he basically I, I didn't get to wrestle him right away. I got to, I, I, they had me wrestle this younger guy on tour who was just starting out. Uh, and I remember being so pissed about it. And, 
And then all of a sudden, uh, as I'm explaining like why I'm pissed off to like this other guy, uh, he's just like, do you know who this guy is? And I'm like, no clue. And he's just like, who's like the top guy in your area? I'm like, Eric Young. He's like, well, this is the Eric Young of Winnipeg. This is Kenny Omega. And I was like, <laughs> I'm like, oh, okay, never heard of him. So uh, next thing I know, him, because he was young, and like him and I had to wrestle each other twice every single night on tour. Like we'd wrestle in a singles match to start the show. Uh, I'd beat him in singles matches. He has never beat me in a singles match. So fuck you, Kenny Omega. And then you got a uh, shot, then you've earned it, right? Cody's <laughs> offered him up. Hook him up, dude. Uh, so then we would do a tag match in the main event where it was him and uh, a midget with boxing gloves against me and the other heel that we caused this kerfluffle with in the bed. Yeah. And in the end I would go to give the midget the F five. Uh, he would never take it the right way. Uh, and then Kenny <laughs> Omega would just beat the shit out of me. Blah, blah, blah. One, two, three. Um, <laughs> but then I got to wrestle Chi Chi Cruz. And uh, I remember when I went up to him, I just remember like that first night because uh, he won, they wanted to do the same show every, like every night of the tour. But then mm -hmm. something happened. We were like doing back-to-back -back nights. So they had to finally switch something up. And I was just like, please give me Chi-Chi Cruz. So he's just like, okay, fine. You were wrestling Chi-Chi Cruz in the main event and I uh, want uh, 45 minutes. <laughs> I don't know how to do 45 minutes. He's like, well, you better fucking figure it out. You wanted it, you got it. I'm like, oh, fuck, I did ask for it. So then I'm like trying to like get my, my ball and nerves together. And I finally go up to Chi-Chi Cruz. And I'm like, hey, Cheech, we're in the main. 45 minutes. What do you want to do, boss? <laughs> Stunner. And then just walks away. Doesn't, <laughs> say, doesn't say who's giving it to who. I just was like, I guess I'm taking the stunner. All right. So uh, I guess I'm about to go learn how to do pro wrestling real quick. And, and that was what he did. He, uh, for 45 minutes, taught me how to wrestle and taught me, like, literally re- like when I say he retaught me pro wrestling in 45 minutes, uh, he did. Like it was an unbelievable mind opening experience for me. Uh, I got to do it again with them. I believe one or two more times throughout the course of that tour where it was like, after that night, I was just like, can we do that same thing again? Like, can we do an hour and just not like, just stunner, cool, whatever. <laughs> like, fuck, if you want to switch it up, leg drop, fuck, I'll, I'll take the leg drop at 60. Don't give a fuck. Like you tell me what the fuck to do, dusty, whatever. I'll take it. Um, <laughs> And we, that's what we did. And, uh, I came back a completely different guy and then just was able to, uh, to go off and do a bunch more other things. But then, uh, in like 2009, I want to say, I just, I, I was getting burnt out because like I was putting everything I had into what I was doing and I wasn't moving ahead because that was a very, it was a time where you had to be really political and you had to have like friends here and this and this or else mm -hmm. you were, like you didn't have, like if you were good, it didn't matter. And I, I've never been a political guy. I've never been that guy that's going to kiss somebody's ass just to, to kind of get me to the next level. So I, I never progressed. And then I ended up just running into people that were just garbage human beings to me. And then I was just like, I got to get away from this because like, this isn't what I, this isn't what I fell in love with. So yeah. that's when I actually stepped aside and took like five years off and got into the world of like kickboxing and mixed martial mm -hmm. arts and, and met up with some amazing guys. And then kind of fast forward after that, I just got the itch to get back into it. Uh, that itch for some reason led me into uh, somebody basically helping me open a gym, which was cross body. And then oh, once yeah. you have a gym, you're kind of balls deep into it. And then uh, I've been, tr I tried really hard for a long time to kind of, 
be the coach, be the trainer, be a wrestler, do this. But then once I started putting shows on, it just, there became, I was spreading myself so thin that once uh, that night at Slammiversary with Impact happened, that's when I kind of decided like I need to, I need to focus on this. But um, at the same time too, Sorry, I was just going to say, we, we had spoken about that trial by fire being such a great learning tool. Um, that the other, another big takeaway from your story I got was how they called you and just, you got to be there the next day. And that's the best and worst thing about the professional wrestling industry that you could have nothing going on. And all of a sudden you just you get a text, you get a call. Hey, can you be here tomorrow? Hey, can you be here in a week? And mm-hmm. literally your entire life could change. I know that's how yeah. it was for me with impact. That's, that they just they they hit me up two weeks before uh, in the fall of 2017. Like, hey, can you be in Ottawa in two weeks? And just like, all of a sudden, I went from just being an indie guy to uh, being an indie guy who had exposure yeah. and impact, you know. And it, and it was life changing for me. It really was. And it's just it's frustrating, but it's also amazing that just you never know when that next big break or that next good luck is just gonna be waiting around the corner for you. Yeah. And like, that's, and that's the thing. Like I, I, there was, I, I just talked to Fulton about this on, uh, on episode two, but we were talking about how, uh, and I'm pretty sure you were there for this, but there was a, a, a taping that I was at where, uh, I wasn't working, but I was there and, mm-hmm. um, there was an opportunity that was available and I was just, I, I brought it up to somebody in creative that I'm like, Hey, listen, like I'm not working, I'm not doing anything, but I've got my gear. Like I can do this. Like, can I, can I please do this? Like I've never had my TV match that I've always wanted to kind of validate my wrestling career. Let me just go out and, and take that fucking spear from Moose. Like I let me do it. I know that I, I'll make it worth your while. I promise. And he stopped me dead in my tracks as we were walking. And he just like pointed me like chest and like finger in the chest. and was like, you are not a wrestler here. And it was like a fucking shotgun that went off in my chest because it, it, it mm-hmm. I'd, I just remember we were walking as we were talking and it like stopped and I couldn't even, and I felt like I like, it hit a wall and it, it really messed me up for a while. And I was just like, okay, well maybe he's trying to tell me that like, that's not my path and I've got to stick to, to this. But then once, uh, I don't get that phone call from impact anymore, nor, nor did I ever, but like, I don't really, uh, like as much as I would love to, to go back, like, I don't know if, if they want me there, like, I, I honestly don't know. Like it's, we're kind of in that part of the rule. I, I genuinely don't know. And then it dawned on me that if, if nobody is signing me to a contract and nobody's like, I, I, I don't owe anybody anything. So mm-hmm. who the fuck is to tell me that I can't wrestle because I know that I can, and I know that I can do it very well. So that's why I kind of given myself like once everything comes back and wrestling goes back to normal, like I'm giving myself one year to go and do all of the things that I always thought that I was capable of doing. And I, if it means bringing guys in to, to wrestle in my own promotion, cause that's the only way I'm going to get it. I think that's the grossest move that a promoter can do. I'll fucking do it. I don't <laughs> care. Like this next year is going to just be something for me to prove a point to myself first of all, but like also people like that who told me that like, you're not a wrestler here or wherever that with all due respect and all the love in my heart, when I say this, fuck you, like, don't tell me what I am and what I'm not, because I know what I am and I know what I'm capable of. And you don't, 
so that's going to be my next year, brother. Man, I agree with that. I support that. I, I can, the one thing I can say about impact is they make it their mission to break down people's self-esteem so that they will do anything for them. And it, it really messes with your head while you're there. And it's a big reason why I'm not there anymore. It's just such a toxic environment of, of control and mind games and negativity and just, yeah, don't, don't look for that at there. The only person you can find that out of is, is yourself, you know, it might be cheesy or whatever, but. No. And here's the thing is like, I'm, I'm very much living on that whole, what you were kind of mentioning before where, you know, uh, is if, if, if Scott calls me and he was just like, I would love to, for you to come and work with us. I'm going to do it. And I would love to do it because I genuinely loved my time there. And I loved the people that I worked with. I will say that it's not the same crew that I got to work with and fell in love with. Uh, there's different people, but I mean, that's growth and whatever. Yeah. But uh, at the same time too, I'm also not going to be that guy that's going to be sitting there like, Hey, hey can I come to work anymore? Like, oh, blah, 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 blah. Like, I'll just, my, my, here's, here's they the phone, Scott. Them. You got my number. Like, I'll, yeah, I'll just one. sit here and wait for you to come. That day's gone, man. Like if, if they want me, I will be happy to be there. Uh, I know what I can bring to the table now. And that's not to sound cocky or not to, 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 to be that guy. I just know that I was given a position by them that, and I would never be in the position that I'm in if it wasn't for that company providing me that position and, and education because of them, I now know what I can do in that position. And I know that I can go in there and I can knock it out of the park. So, uh, if you need me, I'm there, but I also don't need that. Like, to, I don't need, I don't feel like I, I need to beg anymore. Um, yeah. because if it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen. My hard work, I'm going to continue to work my ass off. And if it gets me somewhere, then that's what my path was supposed to be. But if it doesn't, then if you don't think that I'm happy uh, and I know that this is like a crime to say in pro wrestling, but if you don't think that I'm happy being in my own little bubble in Kitchener, Ontario, where I get to genuinely help the next generation of wrestlers that are in my area, not just my students, but the people that I get to to help on my shows and my showcase shows and that next crop of guys that wrestle on my bigger shows that are going to be the next crop of guys that are on the mm-hmm. bigger shows, then that's... I, that is what makes my heart happy. Uh, it's what makes me feel good. And, uh, and I don't have to take the bumps either. (laughs) So that's all it's, it's just so nice. And like, I just feel like, uh, if, if that ends up being my path for the rest of my pro pro wrestling life, or even just my life in general, I'll be goddamned if anybody tells me that that's not enough and that that's not something to be proud of because I've watched the amount of people that, have worked for me and worked underneath me grow, not just as professional wrestlers, but as human beings. And to me, that's the most literal, most important thing uh, that you can come out of, not just in this business, but in life, getting better at what you do and becoming a better person. I love that mindset. And that, that, I mean, that says it all right there. Yeah. And you know what, with that being said, we're going to wrap this up because I went half hour over my time with Chris when I literally was telling him that this is what we do is keep time, but I fucked it up. So I'm sorry. Please tell you. It's fine. I apologize. It's fine. I enjoyed the conversation with you and I can't wait to come back. Uh, whenever you're ready to have me again, you let me know. We can talk. You can talk about your Canadian death tours. I'll talk about my uh, the, my uh, Mexican death tours that I did with uh, DTU uh, doing Lucha Libre death matches down there. It'll it'll be fun. 
I'd love to. So just to let everybody know, uh, you can find the show on Twitter and Instagram at Big Ben AF Podcast, as well as on Facebook under the Big Ben and Podcast uh, name. You can find us on YouTube by searching the show name because we don't have enough subscribers at the moment yet to have an actual YouTube channel name. So you have to actually search us by name. And motherfuck YouTube, by the way, Chris, because when you search Big Ben and Friends Podcast, go do this. It'll tell you, did you mean Big Ben no friends? <laughs> Good rib. Um, but you can also find uh, – please subscribe so then that way I don't have to feel like an asshole anymore. Uh, if you can, you can also find the audio version of the show on Anchor, which distributes our show to Spotify, iTunes, and like a bajillion other emails that I've been getting notifications that our podcast is on this and this and this and things I've never heard of. So you can literally search us on all platforms. You can find me personally on my social medias at Big Ben is Angry. Uh, you can find us uh, Crossbody Pro Wrestling and Crossbody Pro Wrestling Academy social medias at CBPW Academy. And you can subscribe to that YouTube channel page at uh, youtube.com slash Crossbody Pro Wrestling Academy. As we mentioned before, you can also find us on Independent Wrestling TV using the code CROSSBODY to get five free days, uh, which if you do, it's going to tie into this next part here where uh, you can find us on prowrestlingtees.com as well, slash crossbody pro wrestling, where we're having a uh, special, uh, we're, we're doing a charity thing this month where uh, we've gotten together with all of the black members on our main roster. And uh, I've asked them what I could do to help and what they've done and what we've done is we've co-combined and created a couple of t-shirts that we have for sale uh, on the website as of right now and a bunch of us are putting our wrestling tees onto this as well where 100% of the proceeds of these shirts are going to be going to www.blacklivesmatter.ca which is also a group that they have decided that's where the funds were going to be allocated to. Uh, it's very important for me and uh, it's a project that is obviously near and dear to to uh, a lot of our hearts. I know yours, especially Chris. Um, is there any other final comments that you have before we uh, completely wrap this thing up? Um, just uh, thanks for having me. And you know, I, I was going to plug my pro wrestling t-shirt, but instead I'd, I'd rather they go to yours because no, no, forget my wrestling. Tees. I want them to go to that because black lives do matter. That's a incredibly important social movement that we're in the midst of. We're at a moment in time that we can make a difference. Uh, I get, you know, so in lieu of my breast pro wrestling t-shirts go there go to and what was the the url for yours uh so it, it's pro wrestling tees.com slash crossbody pro wrestling um i'm still going to put your store uh in the uh, description box because i still want people to go and support chris he's an amazing guy uh where can we find you on social media you can find me at ref chris levin and that's chris with a k because my parents are difficult and you can also find us on social media at Locker Dicks, which is, you know, Locker Room Detectives. Detectives, old, old 30s nickname for detectives are Dicks. So at Locker Dicks and at From the Mat Tales, which is my upcoming audio docudrama, uh, Tales from the Mat. And yeah, uh, support independent pro wrestling, support Black Lives Matter. Hell yeah. And that's going to wrap it up for this episode of the Big Ben and Friends podcast, everybody. I'm Big Ben Ortmans. This was my guest, the great Chris Levin. I absolutely love this man. He's literally one of my favorite human beings. I can't thank you enough for tuning in and uh, for you for doing this show. And uh, thank you, everybody, for tuning in to watch me get to know my buddies just a little bit better. Have a great night, everybody. Thanks for having me. Love you, buddy. Love you too, man.